0: Welcome, this is the Sales IQ podcast. My name is Luigi Preston and I'm on a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be. Each week, we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe so we can help you master the art of selling. Welcome to the Sales IQ podcast. I'm your host, Luigi Preston And as always, I'm excited and pumped to share another episode with you. Before we dive deep into today's session, I want to thank you all for listening and for the great feedback I continue to receive. I love learning from the guests we have on, and to be able to share that with you is such a privilege, so I want to show gratitude and say thanks. If you like this week's episode or any of the past episodes we have produced, please don't forget to like, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, send me a note on LinkedIn or via email, and tell me what you like about the show, some topics that you would love us to cover that will help you in your sales and business journey. So let's get into this week's episode. This week, we're joined by Jeremy Donovan, the VP of Sales at Salesloft, a platform which is helping thousands of salespeople engage with more prospects and helping organizations automate some of the most frustrating tasks within the sales process. Jeremy has authored five books and co-authored one of my favorite books, Predictable Prospecting, with the awesome Mary Lou Tyler. Jeremy is also a professor at the NYU School of Professional Studies, where he helps people master the art of presenting. During this episode with Jeremy, we're going to break down some of the most challenging aspects when it comes to running a sales division, the recruitment and induction part. He will share with us how he finds talent, recruits, and what he does to ensure new team members are set up for success. So this is a great episode for anyone hiring or for any salespeople looking for that edge when it comes to landing that next dream role. So please welcome Jeremy Donovan to the show. Thanks, uh,
1: such a pleasure to be on.
0: Ah, fantastic, man. I'm absolutely uh, pumped to, to have you on the show. And uh, obviously um, we had your co-author of Predictable Prospecting on the show earlier this year, Mary Lou, who was an absolute pleasure to interview about you know prospecting and, and creating predictable uh, revenue models, which was fantastic.
1: Yeah, super super brilliant person, and uh, lo- loved interacting with her. And I also loved reading the book that she co-authored with another person, Aaron Ross, which was Predictable Revenue. So yes, it's a uh, she's a force of nature.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, she's awesome, man. So look, I'm actually really excited about today's topic because um, you know we're, we're going to discuss sort of how to how to find talent. You know how to find whether it's SDRs, uh, BDRs, account executives. Um, how do we a find talent? And then how do we bring them into an organization and, and help them um, achieve competence in a quicker time frame? So, and, and this is one where I know that organizations globally are finding it somewhat challenging um, to find and, and actually engage with new talent. But before we break this topic down, tell us a bit about how you got into the world of sales.
1: Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm non-traditional and I sometimes joke that I probably have no credibility <laughs> because my, most of my selling experience was... was was teen or preteens selling mangoes by the side of the road, or selling comic books or baseball cards to my friends? I was always selling something. I always had some kind of hustle going. Yeah. Uh, but then I, I actually, uh, the the quick progression is I started my life as an engineer, uh, an electrical engineer in the semiconductor industry, and worked my way through to marketing and then to sales. But the the without going into gory detail, the the reason is is there was a point in time about a decade ago where marketing transformed from the brand and creative marketing to very ROI-driven, demand-gen-based marketing. And because of my engineering background and my love of, of, of math and and business it, as they intersect, I was lucky enough to work my way into a CMO role in a, in a decent-sized company, and then I found the the uh, sales along the way because marketing obviously has to partner with sales and then sales right now and over the course i would say starting about five years ago and then into now right is having that same revolution right where math and and sales are intersecting in a uh, in a really exciting and uh, intellectually challenging way
0: yeah yeah it's, it's a pretty interesting um you know background that you've got that you've come in from a, you know a non-traditional area and uh coming into that point of 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 sales and marketing, and your role at Salesloft, you're covering. You, do you cover both sales and marketing, or is it just sales?
1: It's mostly sales, so I have a I have a kind of cool role that I get to do. I get to do three things. One is our sales development teams, so our SDRs, BDRs, roll up to to me ultimately. Yep. And the second thing is our sales engineers also roll up into me. And then the third piece is just this the the thing that I title myself by, which is sales strategy. So whenever we're going to do something that that takes, it's collaborative, it's cross-functional, it's complicated change, whether it's compensation or territory or something like that, I'll I'll work on that project for a period of time and then hand off to other people to to execute. So I I get to to touch a lot of things. And just to circle around, by the way, one of the things I, (laughs) because I came in late to sales, one thing that I do is I just read voraciously. I'm always reading you know whatever the latest sales books are, even mm-hmm. if they're somewhat repetitive, as long as I get a little nugget out, I'm happy.
0: Yeah, I love it. And I noticed you did a book review on um, sales differentiation, which is an awesome book. Yeah,
1: yeah, love love that book. Yeah. <laughs> happy to talk about that yeah. if you want to.
0: <laughs> yeah, and James Muir's uh, closing book as well is just an awesome book. Um, so, man, I'll um, I want to get into this uh, topic and uh, about the you know recruitment. Um, finding talent, then recruiting them, and then inducting them. Because again, um, whether you're a, a business looking for salespeople or you're a salesperson looking to get into a business, this is a topic that can help. You know, both corporates and sales professionals. Um, help me understand, sort of, you know, because you are passionate about this particular topic. Uh, you know, what when you first started hiring SDRs, um, what did you used to do? I mean, did you always get it, you know, on point, and you hired? you know, guns, or did you find it was a bit of a hit and miss?
1: Well, first of all, I'm, I'm super glad we're talking about the hiring, the practice of hiring, because that's another one that I think is moving over time from being pure art to being a bit more science. <clears throat> and I would, going, you know, going back in time, tw- I'm 25 years into my career, so going back 25 years when I, when, uh, I was hiring, because I was managing very early, it was it was very much the the sort of gut hire right as yeah. you have this informal interview with somebody and you know maybe they maybe they they gave a presentation or something somewhat artificial and then you make this decision and you know you and i were chatting a little bit in advance that you know you, you they it might take you 6 months to figure out that they're a bad egg mm. so there's a big question about what can you do to make to, you know to make hiring more predictable and and you know there there is a lot of there I'll pause but there is a lot of science in that so so yeah I, I would think I was hiring the bad way before and I I hope I'm hiring a better way now.
0: Yeah, and do you maybe able to share with us some of the success that you're having, like um, with your team?
1: Yeah, I mean I the key is, I mean with the. the you know, I, I try to avoid any degree of self-promotion. But um, I guess what I can say is the ways that, that I've learned to modify the way I hire, it, it actually all did start with yet another book. Uh, it was a book called Work Rules written by Laszlo Bach, who was the head of HR at at Google yeah. and uh, now runs a, a, his own company. And in that book, Laszlo cited a research study that it's a uh, famous Schmidt and Hunter study, but what he what that study actually did was it figured out what are the things that are predictive of job performance at at scale, right? Yep. Uh, and they they went through kind of everything imaginable. I, I remember the 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 most. I don't know why I don't call it silly or not one, but is is graphology? You know what graphology is? No, tell us about that. Yeah, so graphology is handwriting analysis. So uh, you don't—I don't think you see much of it anymore. But certain, definitely in certain countries, like I think it was very popular in France and other places, people would make hiring decisions by submitting handwriting samples that were then evaluated for personality characteristics. Wow! <laughs> and the, the academics did tests and found out that, as you would expect. That's that's complete. I don't know whether I can swear on the show, but no, no, go for it, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll just say complete horse manure. I guess is the <laughs> is the best way to put it. There's no predictive correlation between handwriting and as you would expect and job yep. performance. <clears throat> but he does identify three things, and this this is what really got me thinking about how do I apply this in the world of sales? Because the, the articles written about really job performance anywhere. But the three things: number one is IQ. which is referred to in the academic literature as general mental ability, but IQ. Um, And a lot of sales leaders will call that clock speed. Yeah. Uh, Number two is conscientiousness. And uh, conscientiousness, someone asked me, I thought everyone sort of knew the definition and most people do, but I think of conscientiousness as that you, you, you say you're going to do, you know, you, you basically figure out that what you need to do. Yeah. And then you do what you say you're going to do, yeah. right? It's follow. A lot of it is follow through. And prepara- so preparation, sorry, preparation and follow through. And then the third thing is, and those two, by the way, are relatively, quote unquote, inexpensive to test. You can test with them using like test instruments. Uh, and, I, yep. and when I say inexpensive, it means it doesn't require a lot of hiring manager time to test for those things. Mm. And then the third thing, though, does, which is actual job skills. So demonstration that you can actually do the job. So those were the three. uh, Those were the three things. So should we have a a chat about kind of how you then? Absolutely. Yeah. So how you operationalize that? So operationalizing IQ is pretty. Is actually the easiest of the three. You there are plenty of test instruments out there that you can give people. The two that I've seen used most commonly in sales. One is called the Cattell criteria; it's from Criteria Corporation, and then the other one is called the wonderlick and they're they're I think they're fifteen-ish, maybe minute test that you take, maybe twenty minutes. I can't remember. Yeah. And your and the outcome of it is extremely highly correlated with IQ.
0: Okay.
1: So you can and what a lot of companies do, uh, including Salesloft, by the way, is just set a threshold that. Uh, you know, maybe you set it at the 50th percentile. So, you know, you, you want to take people who are in the top 50th percentile of IQ. So that's a, that's a screener, a pretty effective screener. And then conscientiousness. Yes, there are personality tests that test for that and actually are shown to have pretty high correlation with, you know, people's true level of conscientiousness. But I think in the interview process, I was having a conversation with someone about this the other day, uh, little things, right? Like uh, they ask a question in the interview. Um, Tell me about me, right? Like Luigi, if I was to interview with you, you would say like, "Tell me about me," and then you'd expect that I would have gone through your LinkedIn profile, probably, or listened to some of your podcasts, or what have what have you, right? So yeah. that that that's the preparation test, and then the the follow through test might simply be, you know, did they send out did they send a thank you letter within 24 hours or a thank you email within 24 hours, <clears throat> and was that Is it is it is it free of typos? Is the grammar good? Is was it did it reference specific things that we talked about? So that you know, there again, you're getting at preparation and follow up.
0: Oh, that's an interesting. I thought about that. So if they sent the follow up, then they're they're demonstrating that they're you know they've they're good with the follow through.
1: Yeah, I know people who will not hire. If they don't get it, they set a 24-hour cutoff, and if someone misses the 24-hour 24 24 hour mark, they will not hire that person, no matter what.
0: Wow. So regardless of how they interview, their skills, their attitude—if they don't do the follow-through, they don't chase them down.
1: They're out. Okay. They're out. Because think about it, right? Is—is is if this is the this is probably the most important thing they're ever going to sell is themselves to you for the yeah. job. And if they can't even do the basic, conscientious thing of sending you a personalized well written follow up within 24 hours yeah just imagine how they're going to treat their potential customers
0: absolutely that's a really interesting
1: okay fantastic and then there's job uh, skills and then the, yeah so that that the third one is job skills so that, that one's considered to be more expensive to test because yeah. uh, you know you you need to evaluate it more closely as a manager and that one's really going to vary by the position um, i think more and more people are getting smart to this i i, I know from folks I've talked to is have them do something, some aspect of the job. So for sales, you know, let's take SDRs, and then I'll be talking about AEs after that. So yeah. for SDRs, like what does an SDR need to do? They need to they need to research, and they need to make calls and e- call, you know calls and emails, um, and and book appointments. So what what people will do is during the interview process, like set yes, yeah, set a time and have them cold call you. And have them try to schedule a meeting with you. And what I like to ask candidates to do is to try to pitch sales loft to me. And I don't necessarily expect them to get the sales loft pitch exactly, you know, quote unquote, right. Yeah. But but I that's what they're going to do. So I want to test, <clears throat> you sort of practice the way you're going to play. I, I want to test them as, as closely and as faithfully as I possibly can. And then I also want them to draft a prospecting email to me as well. Same deal. Right. So you're really testing what they are going to do in the job. Yeah. And then and that was an AE role play, right? I yeah. mean, I think that's critical.
0: Yeah. And take us back a step. So, I mean, these are the things that we do and I want to break this down even further, but how do you go about finding talent? Like is it just a matter of putting it up on a job board or do you have sort of innovative ways to find uh, new people to bring them into the yeah. interview process?
1: I mean I, yeah it, it depends on the you know I've, you, you, I've been through a lot of ups and downs of job markets we're in a particularly tight job market yep. right now where it's it's become super hard to find people at every level and it's it's relatively routine to have to relocate people mm. these days from place to place and there have been other periods over the course of my career where it was like that as well where you know there was a lot of mobility of people to 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 the right places for the jobs um, for me, yeah, it's I'd say it's a combination of things. Uh, for the for junior talent, where like I'm not as connected with the junior talent. Like there, it is word of mouth from our our you know more millennial sales force. Yeah. Uh, or posting on job boards, or posting on LinkedIn, or or that sort of thing. I mean, I think those the usual suspects. I'll get it like who we do select in a second. But for the more senior candidates, though, I think it's quite different. Which is, I I think the most is maybe one of the hopefully more useful pieces of information I share today. I, I think the one of the key things that that separates people who become you know effective sales leaders at the, is that they are collectors of talent. Yeah. And and uh, and really really great AEs are paid well. They're performing well, so they have no financial incentive to leave wherever they are. Um. They will leave. When they get unhappy, <clears throat> usually with their manager, or maybe the company changed its comp plan in an extremely disadvantaged disadvantageous way to them. Yeah. But something something someday is gonna make them unhappy. And the key, I, I think, to be a you know, successful sales leader is to basically cultivate those relationships over the long term so that you are the first dial that they make mm. on that day that they're unhappy, and then you're able to bring them into your organization. Yeah. Um, and, and that lowers the risk so much. I mean, with a you know, if you hire junior people, you know, that risk of three to six months of compensation if they don't work out is super painful, but it's not catastrophic. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> if you hire a ton of very expensive senior people and they don't work out, like that's a catastrophic loss of cash flow in the, in the near term, but even more so that hiring the wrong person isn't just what you spend on them. It's the fact that you didn't hire the right person who Mm. could have been closing in advance of that.
0: Yeah. And then the time that you've taken to, you know, coach them, performance, manage them versus, you know, spending time with your high performers. Mm. So there's always that opportunity cost.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And with the junior people, by the way, also, um, you know, we do like, we do screen pretty, pretty carefully. And I'm a, having been an engineer in the past, I'm a big fan of data-driven, yep. all things data-driven. So uh, we did this exercise where we, we pulled everyone who had ever been a, an SDR, BDR at Salesforce, yep. and then we classified it was 1,400 of them, 1,416 to be exact. Wow. And we classified them as being successful or not. And our definition of success was that they had been promoted from SDR to AE at Salesforce. And the reason we use that strict definition was because, like, there are some people who, who uh, you know, may have gone from SDR to AE outside of Salesforce. But we figured if they were successful at Salesforce, Salesforce would have offered them an AE position. Yeah. So we we de- we defined that as success. Then we looked at all this bio data. Where do they go to school? Uh, what do they major in? Did they work before? If they worked before, what industry did they work before? Um, uh, what was their you know what job function were they in before? Did they play sports in college? Like everything we could possibly think of, we took a look at to see if that mattered.
0: And what mattered? Did any of that actually make up you know success of a sales professional?
1: Yeah some some does and some doesn't. Yeah. Um maybe I'll end with the most interesting one. So I'll will t- talk about the <laughs> the other very interesting ones but not the most interesting. So the the other in- the, the sort of interesting ones uh one is where you go to college does not matter. Yep. So the college rank does not matter. Um and your your college degree and un- only matters if you were had a STEM degree, a science, technology, engineering, or math degree. Yeah, but that's probably just a you know some degree of correlation with IQ, not a perfect correlation. And it's extremely hard to find uh, SDRs who have STEM degrees. They just don't tend right. I mean, they're much more lucrative for them to just go directly into engineering jobs these days. <clears throat> but if you can find them, hire them. Um, and then the 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 sector that they had come from, at least at Salesforce, people who had come from professional services tended to be more successful than people who hadn't. A lot of that ties to what the particular job was. So we noticed in the data that there were sort of three jobs that um, that were in, that were correlated with success. One is having been a recruiter before, like a headhunter. Yep. That there, they hire a lot of former recruiters there, and and that's the that's in the professional services category, and then the other two are not as much professional services, uh, but the other two that we notice in there are journalists for, and people who were teachers. So there are all, lots and lots of other profiles, but I would say the recruiter is probably the the strongest <coughs> signal of success in the, in that Salesforce data. Oh well, wow. yeah i can tell you like what's bad actually is to hire people who who um were asked who were most recently sdrs like they failed as sdrs
0: yeah okay
1: so that, that's pre- a bad profile to hire hmm.
0: so can can we go on that and just say okay so how obviously sales loft is growing extremely fast right you guys have i think you've passed unicorn status now is that correct
1: we're yeah, ver- we're verging on it absolutely. Yeah,
0: so it's um you know it's growing fast. Um, there's some hot competition as well. Um, we had Mark recently from Outreach.io and a smaller business called Auto Close. So there's some hot competition that in this space, right? Um, and it's going to continue to grow given customers. It's it's getting harder and harder to engage with with inbound leads and also outbound leads, right? So how do you go? We've we've looked about how you are about finding talent. Um, are you able to share the actual recruitment process? That you know has delivered such success for you in, in in actually bringing on talent.
1: Yeah, I mean we hit on aspects of the recruiting process already, um, yeah, and we, and you know bits of the bits of the hiring process. Yeah. I think one of the key things we didn't talk about is how critical the brand strength of your company is as an employer. So that's I would say if 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 Salesloft has a secret sauce to getting incredible people. The, I think the number one secret sauce, it sounds a little touchy feely, but is, is literally our, our, what it's like to work at our company. Okay. Um, I, you know, I used to have this rule and I, I got it from yet another book. It was called uh, so good. They can't ignore you by Cal Newport. And he walked through this framework that basically says, that says, lean into your job and be the best you can be, be so good. They can't ignore you. And that's the best strategy for, you know, for sort of professional development and he, he says do that as long as a bunch of things are true, and if, if any of the things are not true, then you should move. But one of the things he has in there is that the the environment is neither toxic to you physically or mentally. Yeah. And so basically that the, the the culture is a is a healthy culture, and I, I lived by that rule for most of my career, and then I discovered Salesloft, which has a truly nurturing, uh, has a truly nurturing culture, mm. and the. You know that these days, I mean, it was. I, I wish it had existed when I was younger. But these days, the the ultimate way to figure out whether that's true or not is to go on Glassdoor. Yeah. Um. But like that, that uh, the, the culture piece is, is, I think, a one of maybe a, a set of things that attract people to want to work for you, so that you are able to be choosy about who works for you. I think that's the key. Yeah. Um. And then I think the other thing is just that there really is the opportunity for growth and progression inside the company. And you know, if you take SDRs for example, we have a lot of SDRs sort of operate under a "we'll promote you when we feel like it's time to promote you" rule. <laughs> and and that ambiguity is is not so is, is I mean I'll, I'll be overly soft about it I guess, but that ambiguity is not super helpful. Uh, we actually have a rule that as soon as uh, an SDR has hit 180 opportunities generated, they become eligible for promotion. Wow! And historically, um, everyone who's become eligible has been promoted within you know days, <coughs> days or weeks. Yeah. So so like knowing that you're going to go to a place where where you know people are happy to be there every day, knowing you're going to go to a place where you can grow both in terms of your skills, but also in terms of your earnings and title and so on, like the extrinsics and the intrinsics, mm. that attracts talent to us and gives us the opportunity to be, you know, selective with IQ, conscientiousness and job skills. Mm.
0: And that's pretty great, like, that you're, you're quite transparent about what that growth plan looks like from a, you know, from a from an employee's perspective. Um, because so many, I see that so many you know, so many people leave because they just don't know what the future looks like in the organization and they, they want more and there's no transparency around that. And I think that's awesome.
1: Everywhere I've been, the number one complaint of millennials is like, tell me what's the career progression. Tell me the path. And, and I take no credit for it. Sales law figured (laughs) it out before I got there. Just be, give people really, really clear, um, Answers on how you get promoted from level to level, not just as 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 a SDR, but also as an AE.
0: Yeah, fantastic, man. So, and we've actually covered quite a lot so far. So, you know, from a from a salesperson, you know, sales professional or salesperson listening to this, if they're looking to get into a job, you're covering, you know, the follow up is key, um, making sure that within a certain amount of time they, you know, send an email that references the conversation and they actually show how they would treat a customer, um, that they're conscientious and they prepare. Um, what what I want to ask you as well is when those three categories, IQ conscientious and job skill, what about, um, mindset? How are you looking at, at the, at the person's mindset, whether they're growth versus fixed?
1: Yeah, the Carol Dweck uh, growth versus fixed mindset thing. Absolutely. Um, I think it's – I mean, I think it's super hard to assess that. The other one that, um, you know, people talk a lot about is grit. And, you know, certainly – I mean, who doesn't want to hire someone with grit? I think grit and conscientiousness are extremely closely tied together. Yeah. It's – I think it's so hard to assess that during the hiring process. The – you know, I use, I kind of use those other skills and I don't know that I've ever even really tried to understand whether someone had a growth or fixed mindset in, in, in hiring.
0: Yeah. Well, what about coachable? Like if you, if you, okay, maybe not growth versus fixed, but, um, you know, how, how do you identify if somebody's coachable?
1: Uh, that I love. Yeah. So yes. And and maybe that does get the growth mindset. So coachability it is another one of those sort of top things when you hire someone the way that the way that I will tend to do it is, is one of two ways. One is if I have enough time during the interview, well, I, sorry, I always role play and then I always give feedback at the end of the role play. Yeah. So time permitting, I will role play again with them and see if they were able to absorb the lesson mm. that they were, that, that, that they just got, um, that, you know, that they just heard. And, you know, I would say most do, but some don't. And that's a, that's a huge red flag. If they don't, if I don't have time and you might even argue this is a better way then I, I will, the, I will tell the person who's going to interview with them se- subsequently and who will role play with them again, the coaching that I provided. Yeah. And then I'll sync back with the, that second interviewer to figure out whether or not they seem to absor- absorb the lesson. The reason that th- there's a good and bad of it. I mean, the reason why that might be better is because when that person moves on to the next interviewer, they may kind of let their guard down on that coaching mm. and go back to their their default habits. Yeah. And the best people, again, are able to inter- inter- integrate that learning, have that epiphany, you know, during the day, and and adapt their process dynamically. The 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 downside of it, though, is I mean, one of the one of the bad things to do during interviews is actually to to bias your subsequent interview interviewer. <laughs> Yeah. So you just need to be you just need to be sure that you, you know, tell them what coaching skill or what what coaching tip you had given without really saying whether you were thumbs up or thumbs down on the candidate.
0: Mm. That's really good. That's really good advice. So, you know, that coachability, you know, role play, provide them feedback and see if they've taken on that feedback and, and how they've how they've adapted their style, which is fantastic. So now that we've um broken down sort of the recruitment process, finding talent and you know, actually identifying a couple of different things to then bring them in. Um, how do you build that speed to competence with new employees to ensure they achieve that? You know, hundred and eighty was, was it? One hundred and eighty opportunities.
1: Yeah, one hundred and eighty yeah. opportunities for the SDRs, and then you know certain levels of of revenue attainment bookings for our for our AES. Yeah. Uh, I, I will hear all credit goes to our brilliant sales enablement team, which is led by Sean Fowler. Yep, yeah. he's an ex IBM. Uh, employee amongst other places. And, uh, the man is, he is actually Dr. Fowler. He has a PhD oh, well. <laughs> and is, uh, tr- is my partner in crime in many ways, but, but also just a truly brilliant individual. So he's constructed a, a three week onboarding program that, you know, indoctrinates, our, our people, not you know any, anybody in sales in, in a few different areas. So one, I think of it as sort of four or five areas. One is get, get a deep understanding of our customer base, <clears throat> what industries we sell to, what personas, what use cases they have, what their needs and pains are. Uh, two, obviously, is our product. We don't want people feature selling, but we do need them to understand uh, the product. Three is our company and culture again, because the values that we espouse and the way we operate uh, is so important to us. Um, and four is I'll call it sales skills, right? So that's where some of the role play and um, you know we, we, mm-hmm. we use elements of kind of every every methodology, yeah. little bits of cha- of uh, Challenger, little bits of Sandler, little bits of Miller Hyman, right? Little yeah. bits of all the different things that we put together. And then the last thing is is professional skills, which is the soft skills, right? Communication and collaboration and critical thinking and so on. So, you know, that three-week onboarding program really indoctrinates them into that. And then we we have a co- constant cadence of on-the-job and classroom-based learning and um, e-learning using Lessonly as well. So all, every every week, people are getting exposed to to information that helps them be successful in their job. Yeah, that's
0: fantastic. And I often find a lot of organizations are doing the product stuff. They're doing the company culture and they're not necessarily spending a lot of time on the sales skills. And then the, you know, that cadence, that, um, that frequency of learning, micro learning. So, you know, any catch up learning, um, in that onboarding process. And so what how often I see is a lot of salespeople or, you know, they actually turn into feature salespeople because that's the induction that they've been given. And unless they're those, you know, the top 1% where they've got a methodology um, that they're following, uh, they will just default back into the way they've been taught and the way they've been brought into an organization.
1: Uh, yeah, I completely agree. And and so much of the default is, is uh, feature selling, which could you know, we could spend another hour talking about.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So, so this is a really um, a, a very solid process that you have of of you know recruiting talent and then inducting talent. And from from your perspective, I know it's never a good thing to sort of let somebody go, but you know, at what point do you say, you know, no matter how much we give training, um, coaching, you know, the mindset well, not mindset, but this person just doesn't have the will to succeed and falls out of, uh, of the team. Uh, where, when do you make that call?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I subscribe to yet another framework, which is situational leadership, which is you tune your coaching to the skill and the will of the individual on the, on the task or project at the given time. So, I, I mean, I think it's beholden on, on the company and on the first line, the yeah. direct manager to, to monitor skill and will. In terms of separating people, I mean, the the one thing that that in you know managers and associates have control over is activity. Yeah. Um. And it's it, it and activity. I think even itself has two parts. One is the activity quantity, and then the other is the activity. Let's call it efficiency or effectiveness or what yeah. have you, productivity, whatever word you want to use. So I, I think when I'm you know when I'm evaluating whether someone's going to work out or not. At the end of the day, like those, those are the two main things. I guess they could be a terrible, like just a terrible culture fit, but we tend, to, we screen so carefully for culture in the hiring process that I can't remember the last time we had someone who, you know, was a bad actor. Yeah. So it does usually come down to, to activity quantity and, and quality. Yeah. Um, with activity quantity, that, that's, you know, that's the easiest thing to monitor and coach to. So that one, it's it's unambiguous that if somebody is not meeting – is consistently not meeting their activity quantity goals, like they know it and you know it. I don't think there's any surprises there. There's no – I think there's very little pain and separation mm-hmm. on either side when when activity quantity is consistently low. Yeah. And, and so much of the time, that conversation is basically – is a do you really want to be in sales conversation? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I would say most of the time they say, no, like, um, I, I, I thought maybe this was the right thing for me. This is not, you know, I, I don't want to maintain this, this type of activity, right? Like I don't want to be emailing and making phone calls and social touches and mm. what have you. And, and then, you know, you just have that compassionate and helpful conversation and the economy is so good right now, especially that, you know, it's, yeah this- it's super easy for them to find something better and new that's going to make them happier every day of their life. I
0: was going to say what about when you've got that person where they they tell you everything you want to hear i was coaching someone last week performance is is not even at 30 percent of where they should be from a target perspective analyze the metrics i'm a big believer in looking at the sub metrics so you know looking all and it was quite clear that the volume of work required to meet target was not there yeah. And even from like the, a you know, even from a starting at time and getting in right on time and then going for a coffee and and then, you know, twenty minutes into the shift, you're starting you know, managing activities from your CRM um, and having that conversation about what's required to be successful and they say, Yeah, yeah, I'm ready, I w- I want to do it, I want to do it, and then they just go on a, you know, an extended lunch break. Um, how do you have that conversation? Or you know, what have you done in that situation?
1: That again, I think that's the easier situation, is where the the quantity is is off. Is yep. is you? I mean, I'm not sure how it works in in Australia or elsewhere, but in the U.S., you you basically put someone on a what we call it a PIP, a performance yeah, improvement we plan. We do it here too. Yep, yep, yep. That says like our expectation is that you, along with all your colleagues, it's the same standards we hold everyone to, is a certain activity level, and um, like that's the that's the stick, I guess. Hmm the carrot is to understand why why are they coming to work every day right like be you know what are they what, what are their ultimate goals and i think if you can align people then maybe you can recharge their will yeah. or help them recharge their will but i those again i think are the easier ones i think the harder one is is like that same scenario you just you just described which is um they say all the right things and they're hitting their activity targets yeah. and yet their production of opportunities or booked closed one revenue is off. Yeah. That's harder because that's a, that's like a skill problem. Yeah. And, and um, I mean, I can think of very specific scenarios where, you know, people just, just again, they did the activities, but they, they lacked. Uh, I can think of, of an example where, for example, someone, was very much a, I'm going to call them an if then else kind of person, <laughs> that that they 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 could memorize these. That's the worst thing, right? Scripts are terrible, but they would memorize like these little chunks of things to say, and and selling is is a conversation, not a presentation. Mm. And, and their problem was they would get into these discussions, and the, the someone would ask them a question, um, and they they would just always go back to this sort of script, if you will, Yeah. which in B2B sales, you can't do. And, and, you know, in this instance, we coached that person as much as we could and we just could not get them to, they were smart too. It wasn't an, it wasn't an intelligence thing, right? They passed the IQ screens, but yeah. they, they just were so, were so uh, fixed in yeah. their, in their, in their way that they thought they had to have a conversation or it wasn't even a conversation and they're scripting that, that um, it wasn't going to work. So in that case, you know, we, we were transparent about it, but but same same sort of deal, and, and then that performance improvement plan, you know, not only includes the activity, but also includes the outcomes.
0: Yeah, and that and that's the you know obviously lacking a little bit of intuition about where to guide the conversation. Um, and look, this is another topic that we could have a really good debate around because, you know, to script or not to script, and I'm a big fan of call frameworks. Um, and I'm not, not when I mean you know call frameworks, I'm not talking about word for word. I'm just saying guiding. There needs to be in my opinion, um, a process where we're taking the customer through from point of you know entry or point of open to point of discovery to point of um, decision, right? And so,
1: absolutely, there are
0: always things that we need to gain from the customer, and, and, and scripts enable us to say, well, this is what it looks like. But I'm a big believer that you've got to put your own personality, you've you've got to be authentic, you've got it. But then, you know, you got to be able to read the customer and know which way to go. Um, and I often, look, I actually love that challenge when I have a, a, a salesperson presented to me, a professional presented where, where they're putting in the hard work um, and they're not getting the overall outcome. And I often say, don't focus on the scoreboard because if you can get the first couple right, get your mindset right, get the metrics right, um, as long as you're open to uh, you know, building the skill, we can eventually get you to a point of performance. Um, and I, I love I that challenge. So you know, it's interesting that we both find uh, you know, one's a challenge, one's hard, and, and, and some you know, I really love that. <laughs> <Yeah>. one, so. <laughs> um, so this is really awesome. You know, there's so many nuggets in this conversation, and we've probably got two or three post-conversations from this uh, particular episode, Jeremy. So I appreciate your feedback. But I want to ask you a question just about yourself. Um, in your career, apart from all these great books that you've read, who's been the biggest influence and why?
1: Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, I'm a big believer in in having a, a quote-unquote league of extraordinary mentors. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, have a, I have so many of them, but I guess to name a few, one is um, my stepfather, actually. My mom remarried late in life, yep. so I was already married with children. And my stepfather was a, rec- a retired executive, and I would go to him all the time for advice on specific problems. Yeah. Um, you know, particularly like um, like politics and, and interpersonal work related friction. So uh, he was a humongous, uh, you know, it's been a humongous influence on me throughout throughout my career. Um, and then I, I've just been very lucky to have a succession of incredible managers, yeah. Uh, especially over the over the course of the past decade. So I mean, even one of them right now is my my current um, boss, Sean Murray. Who I had met uh, while I was—he was actually selling to me, or his one of his salespeople was selling to me at a prior employer. And he and I, you know, he he came by because I think maybe his seller was on, you know, was on leave. Maybe she was on uh, maturity leave, I think. Yep. And he came by to sell to me, and we just sat down and and had like a two or three hour conversation <laughs> geeking out about sales. And I, I had so much respect for him and and just sort of. Total coincidences. One thing led to another, and now I've got the opportunity to work for him. So um, you know, he's. Uh, I learn from him every day. So yeah. uh, so many influences, but I think, I think that's beholden on people to to find great managers who they can learn from.
0: Yeah. Now, and, and you said it earlier. You know, sales. You know, people leave a manager, not a company, and uh, yeah. uh, and, and yeah. they join. Yeah. They don't a, you leave. Know. They
1: don't leave companies. They leave managers for sure.
0: Absolutely. And mate, if you could go back in time and do it all over again, what's one thing you'd do differently?
1: Oh goodness! I I, you know, I try to live a, a contented <laughs> life, uh, of things that that uh, you know things that I uh, no regret life I guess. But but professionally, I guess if I could go back and give myself some advice, um, I you know in my for better or worse, like in my twenties, I, I think I was just very anxious and agitated mm. and striving, um, you know, in an unhealthy way. Yeah that didn't necessarily affect other people, but it affected my own, you know, physical and mental health. So, I would have just told myself the journey, uh, it's my favorite expression, which is the journey is the reward. So, if, if I had to do it over again, I probably would have learned, you know, when I was 21 and started working, the journey is the reward, just re- tattooed that on my forearm or something.
0: <laughs> that's an awesome, the job, you know what, that's going to be a, uh, a post that I put out, Jeremy, with your, you know, um, the journey is the reward, that's fantastic.
1: I was going to say that that's Lao Tzu or something. It's a that's an ancient Chinese proverb. Oh, so okay. So I, I take no credit for that one.
0: <laughs> All right, I'll have to quote the right person. Hey, mate.
1: <laughs> I, I ask this of every guest
0: because it's um, you know, uh, sales. Is it an art or a science?
1: the answer is yes. It's it's both. It's um, both. Okay. I, I think the 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 science piece is some of the stuff that we've talked yep, about the today, data, right? Yep. Like there's this. There's a, but even so, right? Job performance—the the most prediction of success of job performance—if you throw in every variable you possibly can—is is about twenty five percent of the variability of job performance can be predicted by like those three things we talked about. Yeah, which leaves seventy five percent of job performance up to other stuff, and a lot of the other stuff is art, right? So how does the manager motivate the the person? Um, and then the same thing for selling, right? Is is like yes, there are frameworks. Yes, there are processes. Yes, there are skills. Yes, there are all these things. Yeah. But so much of it comes down in the end, right, to to the emotional side of the purchase. And it, and in B two B, especially enterprise selling, the the buyer is saying, Do I trust that this person is going to provide me with a, you know, not just a platform, but you know, the whole change. Uh, but but it's gonna sell me something that is gonna actually help me improve my business and help me improve my career trajectory. Mm. And like that part is not science. That part is definitely art. yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's um, I really appreciate you sharing that because um, after about well, my plan is about a hundred of these, I'm gonna, you know, just put together a bit of a pack around art, you know, sales and art or a science and some different different responses from from all the guests that I've had because um, it's such an important topic that I believe that it's both. Um, I'm a you know, I move towards that the the art of the conversation. You know, all the 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 conversation is the art. And, and just mm-hmm. like you, that there's a lot of science that we can use to help us improve that art, right? Um, and if we're not looking at that data to then say, well, what are, what is my customer doing? How it, you know, what, what do they need? Um, how can I help them through that buying process? If I'm not using that data, then I'm not improving the art, right? So they go hand in hand. Absolutely. So I appreciate you sharing that with me, man. Mate, this has been awesome. I've really enjoyed the conversation. There's so many nuggets for both sales professionals, leaders, and business you know, enterprise to take away from this. Um, but before we finish up, can you maybe share with us where our listeners can find a bit more about you, some of the books, um, LinkedIn, and we'll put all that in the show notes.
1: Yeah. So the best way to find me is LinkedIn, uh, whatever books I've written. And and a lot of the books I'm reading, I talk about there. And every day I actually put a little one sentence post out there called, Hey, Salespeople. That's a (laughs) uh, little snippet, usually data driven about how to be a more successful salesperson. So I definitely invite you to connect with me on LinkedIn and and look forward to, to, you know building relationships with lots of new people
0: yeah awesome man well again appreciate the content that you're putting out there i really enjoy it the book um for those of you that haven't um read predictable prospecting or i think you've even one about how to deliver a ted talk um yeah yeah we'll put that in the show notes uh you 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 know get on to to jeremy because uh i really appreciate you man and i want to make sure our listeners um, get the opportunity to 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 see and hear what what i've had the privilege of seeing
1: Thanks. I got a big smile on my face. It was a great conversation.
0: Thanks, man. Bang. What a fantastic episode that was. Jeremy made things sound so easy. Why is that? Was he born to just run sales teams, recruit the best people, and make sure they hit their target? What I learned is that Jeremy is a life learner. The way he just referenced books shows me how committed he is in mastering his craft. How committed he is into continuing to learn to get better at what he does. So my challenge to you this week is, what are you doing to master a certain part of your role? What are you doing to master a part in your life that you're looking to improve on? How are you refining and learning so that you can be the best sales professional you can be?